0: Father, we thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ to us. It's a story that should stir our hearts to awe and wonder and amazement. And uh, when we come to know Christ, it is in him alone that we stand and find our strength. It's in him alone that we stand before you. It's in him alone that our sins are forgiven. It's no small thing to come to realize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Father, would you fill our hearts, as I've said already, with awe and wonder and joy at this truth that you have revealed to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. may be seated. If you have your Bibles, uh, you take them and turn to the book of John, John chapter 20, and we'll get there in a a couple moments. As you're turning there, uh, I just want to take a minute or two to um, update you on the uh, business meeting. We had a business meeting here at the church on Uh, Monday, Monday night. And one of the purposes for that meeting was to assess uh, how we're gonna handle the wall. Some of you realized that at one point we had a wall here that was needing remediation. And so we remediated it and were able to build a prayer room and we knew that we had more to do. Well, we dug into it a little bit and concluded that uh, it's not an urgent situation that we have some time. And so for now, we're gonna do nothing um, except keep our eye on it. So uh, uh, just for your information that you can know that. Uh, We also uh, have church membership, and it's part of uh, how the church operates. Um, uh, Members have the opportunity to just vote on the budget and um, other things. Uh, It's a great um, relationship that we have with members. Um, Many of you come on a regular basis, and we consider you members of the church, but there's affordable membership as well. And uh, five people were uh, accepted into membership. Uh, Catherine Bushhouse, some of you would know Catherine Bushhouse. um, Jerry Fletcher. Um, uh, Josh and Christina Finnegan and then Danielle Anderson um, all were received into membership and we look forward to um, getting to know them better and serving um, with them and then one final thing that I failed to mention when we were at the business meeting was that we've had a few shifts because of health reasons in our deacons board and so our numbers were down a little bit and so uh, until May we have invited Frida Zelenko to come and be part of the deacons board until May when we have our annual general meeting. So we thank the Lord for her willingness to um, step into that role for the next number of months. And we pray for those who had to step down because of health reasons. Um, Lots going on in our church. You have great leaders. Um, The elders and deacons and the staff here do just a wonderful job in caring for the building and caring for the people and looking after things here. And I thank the Lord that I get to be part of that group. Father, we now turn to your word. What a joy and delight it is as we shift our gaze and our focus for a little while to uh, events around the coming of Jesus to this world. Help us, Father, to uh, wrestle with it um, and to see it with fresh eyes, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about this little series and even about this morning, uh, I was thinking about cold cases. Some of you would maybe be familiar with cold cases if you read mystery novels or if you're a police officer at all. But cold cases are cases in which um, officers have investigated it and have concluded that they can't make any headway or progress on it. Uh, The crime remains unsolved and so they stick it in a book and they put it in a shelf and they leave it for often many, many years. And then... What happens is uh, somewhere down the road, a a group of officers or a particular officer decides that they will pick up these cold cases and a cold case and picks it off the shelf and begins to look at it with fresh eyes, looking if there was something that was missed before, if the evidence, um, uh, if if something in the evidence wasn't seen before. And uh, they do that with the hope of um, maybe reinvigorating it and solving the case. I was thinking of that only in relation to the fact of Christmas, that Uh, we have not been really thinking about Christmas for 11 months and now here we are it's like we pull all the scriptures off the shelf that have to do with the coming of Christ and we look at them and what I hope that we can do is look at them with fresh eyes Um, there's nothing new that God has um, to do but there are fresh insights that God has I believe to give us as we examine the Word of God and I think one of the the questions that I want to ask as we look at the evidence is why was Jesus born Why was Jesus born? The Scripture has a lot to say about that. And I think as we look at the text with fresh eyes, we may glean some um, insights that either encourage us uh, in our faith or maybe bring us to faith uh, for the first time. And uh, there was a purpose behind Jesus's birth. Uh, It wasn't a random thing. Uh, Jesus's birth was not some product of evolutionary development. It, It was not a uh, uh, just a chance birth like um, uh, uh, the birth of a bird or the birth of a, a duck or a human being. There was a purpose behind God sending Jesus to this world to be born. In fact, it was anticipated before the foundation of the world. Uh, Peter um, describes it this way. That it says that Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake, uh, there's a purposeful um, thought in the coming of Christ even before this world was made. In Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, it says that He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's an amazing reminder to us in Scripture that uh, this world even was not some fluke chance that just uh, kind of happened out of nothing. That even before the world was created, God knew what he was going to do in this world. And so again, I want us to think very carefully and clearly about this, that the birth of Jesus was not random. It was not an afterthought. It was a purposeful birth of God given to mankind. And one of the side notes in all of that, and I hope you'll think about this for yourself, although we likely won't spend a lot of time there, maybe just make reference to it from time to time. Uh, the purpose of the birth of Jesus Christ obviously was very unique. It was unique to him, and, and there will nobody, be else, nobody else like Christ. But I don't want you to think that, that your life has no purpose, and your life has no meaning. I think it is really valuable for us to work this through in Scripture. And what does Scripture say about me personally? Is there a purpose behind my birth? I believe the scripture is very clear that there is. That there is not a single person of the 8 billion people that live on this planet now or have lived on this planet before us that wasn't here because God intended the exact time and place that they should live and that for every single one of us, God knows the number of days that we will live. We are made in his image. We are uniquely crafted in a way to glorify him. And I want you to hear that. I don't want you to ever think that there's no meaning or purpose to your life. And so when we're focusing on Jesus, look at it through the lens of your life as well, that God has a unique purpose for your life here on this earth. As I picked up this then cold case, so to speak, of the purpose of the birth of Jesus, I saw something with fresh eyes, or at least for me, it was helpful to reflect on it in a new way. Jesus obviously was more than a man, or maybe not so obviously, And we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the reasons that he was given or one of the reasons that he was born is so that he might give life. So I just want to work that through with us a little bit this morning. The reason that Jesus was born was that he could give us life. You got to think that through. Well, what does that mean, give me life? And really, Jesus? I can get life through Jesus? What's that all about? So I think we just need to unpack that a little bit. John tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30, verse 31, why he wrote the book and why he assembled his gospel. And this is what John writes. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these ones, the ones that are recorded in the book of John, are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing You may have life in his name. John tells us why he wrote his gospel, why he has written what he has written. This is not an exhaustive summary of the life of Jesus, this is a curated um, uh, 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 example of various selections of things that Jesus did and said during his life here on earth. And it's not a random curation of those things, it's a specific focus and purpose why God has selected uh, these things through John to write down for us. It is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's something that is, it really blows our imagination if you work it through in your own heart and life. I don't think it awes us anymore I don't think it really stuns us anymore what actually happened when God sent Jesus into this world and who he was. I think people get more excited around Christmas time when there used to be a new Star Wars release. They would buy tickets and they would line up for For hours, they would cram the theaters. They would dress up in all kind of paraphernalia. They would leave and they would talk about it for months. The same happened with the Lord of the Rings. There was awe and wonder and what's going to happen now? What's the storyline? What's going to be revealed now? And it comes to Christ and we give it a few passing thoughts and don't consider the awe and wonder and amazement that God would send Jesus into this world and in fact, who Jesus really was. I hope we can recapture some of that as we reflect on Christmas again this year. The story of Jesus is a real story. It's not a fictitious story. It's not a make-believe story. It's not a fable. It is a real story. And as you think through the words of John, why he wrote these uh, words um, in John chapter 20 that I just read, 30 and 31, I think there's a couple assumptions that John is uh, dealing with as he uh, writes those few things there. I think, first of all, we have difficulty looking at Jesus and believing that he's anything more than a human being. A lot of people, that's all they think about when they think about Jesus. Oh yeah, he was that cute little baby that was born. And yeah, he's in the manger and we, we see him in the malls and, you know, we've got a manger here, but there's nobody in it. And we have our, our sort of caresses um, uh, and those sorts of things. But the deity of Jesus is not so obvious, You look at Jesus and you say, Well, he's flesh and blood like me. What do you mean he's God? But that's the reality of Jesus, that he is deity. And of the billions of people around this world that are getting ready to celebrate Christmas in just a few weeks, how many of them think of Jesus as more than a human being? And so, John's intention in writing the book was so that we might realize there is more to Jesus than flesh and blood. And then it hit me in a new way as I was looking at this with fresh eyes again that what we believe matters. I've known this, but John just emphasizes it again and again. We're going to think this through again. Is it enough to believe that Jesus was Jesus? Does believing that Jesus the man, is that enough to save you? Is there salvation in Jesus alone? You got to work that through in your head a little bit. Because John is saying, no, there's more to Jesus than the fact that he was a human being. He was Christ. He was the Son of God. And believing that Jesus was Christ, the Son of God, is then what gives us life. And so what I believe in and how I think about that matters. to salvation. And so John wants to deal with the assumption that Jesus is enough. And I think the third assumption, which is easy to miss, like the nose on your face when you work it through, it's right there, but we don't notice it all the time, is without faith in Christ, we are spiritually dead. Do you see that here in this text? John says, I write these things, these signs I have given to you so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. His assumption is we don't have life outside of Christ. His assumption is there's something missing. His assumption is that while you might have physical life, you don't have spiritual life. Is is that not what he says there? It seems to me that's what he's saying there. The Bible describes us as being those who are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And yet we're physically alive. So Paul would then say that really, um, humankind outside of Christ are dead people walking. We have physical life but we have no spiritual life. And so John writes these things so that in believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we might have life. So we're gonna just work that through just a little bit uh, together this morning. So what's the content of saving faith? You see, Jesus is not what people had in mind when they thought about a Messiah. Was really confused people in Jesus' day, and I think it still confuses people today. I don't know what they had in mind. I don't know what I would have had in mind in my own head when I thought about all the Old Testament texts that describe the coming of Messiah, a savior of the world, and then I looked at Jesus and I said, "Mm, Old Testament Jesus, nah, it doesn't fit. I I don't know what would have been in my head, but it's very clear as they looked at Jesus and said, nah, he's not the Messiah. How could he be? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the promised Savior that God said he would send into the world. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that described God sending a Savior into this world. And if some people could miss it in the Bible, then we can miss it today. One of the people who missed it was John the Baptist. And you think, really, John the Baptist? Yeah, John the Baptist couldn't see the Messiah in the person of Jesus. As he was uh, uh, withering away in a dungeon, he sent two of his disciples. The writer of uh, Luke's gospel tells us, Luke tells us, and he says, I want you to go to Jesus and I want you to ask him a question. Are you the one who is to come? John the Baptist asking if Jesus is the one that he's been announcing is the one to come? Or shall we look for another one? It blows my mind as I actually thought that through. John the Baptist looked at Jesus, the one who he had just declared earlier was the Messiah. And he said, hmm, I don't know. Are you the one? Hadn't John proclaimed that Jesus was? Back in Luke chapter 3, verse 16 and 7. But Jesus didn't look to be the refiner's fire. Jesus didn't fit all the things that John thought that the Messiah would fit. It probably didn't help that Jesus was captive or that John was in a dungeon somewhere, uh, that he was held captive there and that he was going to die very soon. Dungeons are not the place that would, would fill most of us with hope or optimism. And so here's John in this dungeon. But apparently John thought there was something missing in Jesus. There was something not quite right. And so his disciples, he sent them to find out what was going on if he had been mistaken. And the disciples arrived right when Jesus was performing a whole bunch of miracles. He was, he, was, he was doing things that were absolutely amazing. People were being healed of a whole bunch of different diseases. They were being freed from evil spirits by a word of his mouth. They saw this, those two men that John had sent. And so Jesus said to him, he says, go back and tell John what you see. Tell him that the blind see again, that the lame are walking, that lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, and that the dead are raised. In other words, look at what I'm doing. Who else can do this? Is this not what the Old Testament described the Messiah as being able to do? Isaiah chapter 53. And just in passing, isn't this what happens sometimes in our lives as well? We have these perplexities about Jesus. He doesn't seem to measure up to what we think he should be like and what we think he should do. He doesn't act in the way that we want him to act. He doesn't meet our expectations. Why is he taking so long to deliver me from this certain situation? Why doesn't he act more severely when an injustice takes place in our world? So John doubted momentarily that Jesus was more than just a man. Well, the disciples wrestled this through as well. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus comes to them and he's gathered them together by themselves and he says, who do people say that I am? And so they gave him a whole bunch of, um, not a whole bunch, but they gave him a few scenarios of what people were saying, uh, who Jesus was. All of them wrong. Um, But then he says to them, so who do you say that I am? In other words, he was pressing them. "Do, do, Do you see anything about me that's different? What do you see? And do you remember what Peter's response was to him? Simon answered, You are the Christ, the Son of God. There it is. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. See, such recognition matters. That's what genuine faith is built on and is rooted on understanding that Jesus is not just a man. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And I wonder if if this is how we come to see this. Do we just kind of recognize it on our own, or is there something more going on? Well, Jesus answers Peter at that point. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Well, who did? My Father in heaven. God had removed the blinders from his eyes. As 2 Corinthians 4 4 tells us, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they will not see the glory of the Son of God. God had removed the blinders and they said, you are to Christ, the promised one. You are God. Remember when we started Thessalonians a number of weeks ago, We started in um, Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, it describes three weeks of Paul's initial uh, ministry in Thessalonica when he went to the synagogue. And when he went to the synagogue, it says he reasoned with the Jews. What did he reason with the Jews about? Well, he reasoned with them from Scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary that the Messiah that was promised to come, it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. But then saying this, this Jesus, the man whom I proclaim to you, is that one. He is the Messiah. He is God's promised one. He is the Savior of the world. It's important that we go further from Jesus and realize he is the Christ. God's sent one. God's Savior. And then the second thing that John tells that not only that we might realize that he is a Christ, but that he is the Son of God. This isn't all so obvious, is it? It's actually pretty incomprehensible to look at flesh and blood and see God. Isn't God invisible? See, many saw Jesus hanging on the cross and they passed by him and they said, listen, you who said you would destroy the temple... Save yourself if you are the son of God. They didn't believe he was the son of God. He certainly wouldn't have acted in a certain way. He certainly wouldn't have let them kill him if he was God. Come down from the cross. The religious leaders couldn't fathom this as well. The Jews answered him, it, it's, not good, or it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you. <laughs> it's just amazing. Eh? We're not going to kill you because of any good work. We're going to kill you because of blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They couldn't comprehend it. How can a man be God? In another place, the Jews answer, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. God, when he spoke at the baptism of Jesus, declared that he was the son of God. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Satan wanted to push that. He knew that Jesus was the son of God. In the very next chapter, chapter four of Matthew, the spirit leads Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And three times, what does Satan say to him? If you are the son of God. He wanted to get him to prove it. He wanted to get him to to make a show of it. Three times. If you are the son of God. But then there was others who realized this. The centurion and those who were with him were keeping watch over Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. They saw the earthquake and what took place and they were filled with awe and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There's something about the way that he died. There's something about the way that he carried himself. There was something about the things that he said. They had seen hundreds of men crucified, and not a single one of them had died like Jesus. That was unique. Truly, this was the Son of God. The disciples, when they were out in a boat and the storm was blowing uh, crazy, it looked like they felt that they were going to sink and, and they were going to be done with and die. And remember that as they got into the boat, the wind, or when, when Peter and uh, Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased and the waves calmed down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Who else can speak to the wind and it stops? Who else can speak to the waves of the ocean and say, Enough! And they are flat calm." No mere man. They saw in the words and the power of those words that this was no normal human being. And then I thought to myself as I was reviewing the facts and going over this well, how could it be that God, the eternal God, how can he be born? Because isn't when we are born the start of our existence? You didn't exist before you were born. But when you were born, you began to exist. So if Christ was God, then is that not when he started to exist? No. That's why the Bible describes the uniqueness behind his birth. Born of a virgin. Conceived of by the Spirit. And more pieces began to fall into place, and I began to realize, again, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. So how do we move then? How do you move? How how are you confirmed in your confidence that Jesus is more than just a man? What gets you there? Well, John says the reason that he wrote his book is to give us signs that point to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We have signs everywhere, don't we? I mean, you just leave this place and you drive down any given road and you don't have to go more than a block and you've probably seen 21 signs. Those signs give you information, those signs direct you, those signs uh, uh, help you find your way from A to B. They reveal stuff to you. Well, in the same way, we need spiritual signs to reveal stuff to us, to guide us, to direct us, to give us information, to point us in the right direction. Spiritual signs convey this kind of spiritual information. They convey spiritual truths. They tell us things about God and about his nature. And in John's gospel, they tell us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so John has a, a seven signs. I think most people would agree there are seven signs in the first 11 chapters of John. And the purpose of John recording those specific seven signs is so that we might conclude that Jesus is more than a man. That in fact, he is the Christ, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic promises and that he is God. Uh, we I'll just mention them. You can on your own uh, this afternoon or this week look them up. But the seven signs that John records for us that we might move from knowing that Jesus is a mere man to realizing, no, he is the Christ. The son of God are these. Turning water into wine. John chapter 2, verse 1 to 22. Cleansing the temple. John 2, 13 to 22. Healing the nobleman's son. John 4, 46 to 54. Healing the lame man. John 5, 1 to 15. Feeding 5,000 plus people. John 6, 1 to 15, healing the blind man, John 9, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, John 11. There's a cumulative impact to those as you read them, and I believe that's intentional. That each of these not only authenticates the ministry of Jesus and reveal his glory, but each of them is intended to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And it has the same effect today, 20, 2,000 plus years after the day they happened. It's still evidence that we can examine. It's still evidence that we can think through and say, okay, who does this? Who is able to do these kinds of things? And it's important that we realize that there's no further revelation from God to us. We're, we don't need anymore. God has given us everything that we need. He has fully revealed himself, finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. There is no more revelation of God coming to us. And our salvation, I hope we understand this, depends on the reality that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. Your salvation does not rest on Jesus, the man. Your salvation rests on Jesus being the Christ, the son of God. So we're born. The Bible tells us Christ is born with a purpose to reveal God fully to us so that in believing we might receive life in his name. So here we are confronted with the claims of Christ. The Bible tells us in various ways that he is God. One of the names that he was given is Emmanuel. Does Emmanuel mean God with us? Do you believe that? For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. That's that just is mind-blowing. That shouldn't that just stimulate our imaginations? Really? The one who spoke this universe, this world into existence, dwelt in flesh and blood? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That man, Jesus, upholds the universe by the power of his word. So you say, now what? What do you do with that? You may not be there yet, but if you are there, what do you do with that then? What do you, what do, you do with the fact that Jesus is more than a human being, that he is Christ, the feminine of all the Old Testament messianic promises, that he is in fact very God? It's got to be more than just information. It would be so sad If you left here today and you're like, "Ah, I know a little bit more today, I came to realize that they believe that Jesus is not just a man, that he was the Christ and God. No, the intent of John writing that is to transform us. To take this knowledge that we have and to throw the full weight of our belief behind that. See, the object of our saving faith matters. Who is it that saves me? When you you realize that you're a sinner and you realize that you need help and you realize that that you can't do it on your own, you realize that you fall short of the glory of God, who then do you fix your eyes on? Who do you look to for salvation? Anyone? Well, the Bible says look to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the promised one that God sent to save us from our sins. And in fact, he is God. He is therefore able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our iniquities and to take all of our sins and cast them behind his back and to remove them as far as the east is from the west. That reconciliation with God is possible because God entered into time and space to do just that. And genuine faith transformational faith looks to Jesus and says, I will put all the eggs of my belief in the basket of your person. I will not try and save myself. I will not try and talk myself out of the fact that I need to be saved. I will not think of this world as as needing no help. No, I will look to Jesus because if you are the Christ God sent one and if you are God, then you alone must be able to save me and I need saving. So I trust you and we throw all the weight of our actions and our convictions behind the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Genuine faith embraces Jesus alone for salvation. Genuine faith looks to Jesus Christ alone for life. And that's the final thing that John mentions here is the gift of life. That in believing you might have life in his name. Remember what I said earlier? The assumption there, right? So if, if John's assumption is that in believing we might have life in his name, then his assumption is we're dead. Do you, you think about that? Really? Dead? Oh, what do you mean I got up this morning, I had my toast and my coffee and my shreddies. I got in my car, drove here, could see things. I got life, I'm alive, I'm breathing. Well, there's more than one way to be dead. It really matters that you think this through. There is more than one way to be dead. There is physical death And then there is spiritual death. Spiritual death is what happens because of sin. And what it does is it removes us from a connection with God who is life. It puts us at enmity with God who is life. Something within us dies. The wages of sin is death. We know when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you will die. We know that they lived for hundreds of years after that. But something happened. The moment they ate of the fruit, what did they do? They went and hid. They were filled with shame. Something in them died. The joy that they had with God, the freedom that they had with God, the peace that they had with God, it died. It died. This is the state of every human being that is ever born, alienated from God, at enmity with God, out of fellowship with God. As I read earlier, Ephesians says, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Dead, unresponsive to God, have no desires for God, run from God, raise our fist at God. It's a state of spiritual insensitivity towards God. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, I, I think it was in the shark tank or one of those. I can't remember the name of the guy, Canadian guy, but I think he was Canadian guy, but when somebody rejected his offer once, you're dead to me. <laughs> That's what happens with sin. We're dead to God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see what Paul is saying? He says, when, when when we have spiritual life, we understand spiritual things. For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So what is this life? It's not bios. That is a word that's used in the scripture to describe life, bios. It's from where we get biology from, the study of um, human living, of things that are alive. The word that the Bible uses here to talk about eternal life and life is zoe. It's a quality of life. It's eternal life. It's abundant life. It's a return to the kind of life that God intended to us before sin entered into the garden. It's not merely existence. It's life that you've never known it before. It's life that that it's a restoration to fellowship with the God who made you. It's being brought back into a relationship of peace with him, no fear of him, no running from him, no hiding from him. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this wonderful restoration to life as God intended us to live it, in full and abundant and everlasting communion with him, the one who made us. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have of life and have it more abundantly Amen. do you catch the reason jesus was born that you might have life that i might have life life in the name of jesus the christ the son of god so we're born with a, he was born with a purpose to reveal god to us and in doing so that we might believe in him and in believing in him and his name we might have life. Did you know that about Jesus? Did you know that Jesus is more than a man when you came in here? If you did, and you realize he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, have you believed in him for life? Why not? What's holding you back? Who else could change water into wine? Instantly. I guess some people do it in the garage, but they don't do it instantly. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the next one. <laughs> Why would Jesus cleanse the temple and call it his Father's house? Now we move on to the next one. Who else could heal from a distance by a word? Who else could take a few loaves of bread and some fish and feed well over 5,000 people. Who else could speak a word to a man born blind and restore his sight? Who else could speak to a man who had been lame for 35 years and was without hope and not only heal him but forgive his sins? Who forgives sins? Who else could walk to the tomb of a man dead four days Say, Lazarus, come out and restore him to life. What's the conclusion? Well, you can't be just a man. I don't know anybody that's raised anybody from the dead after being dead for four days. I don't know anybody who has spoken a word to somebody who is blind and say, see? They're meant to show us that Jesus was more than a man. Fresh eyes must tell us that Jesus is more than a man. He is Christ, the Son of God. You can leave here today a new person. You can leave here today with life. Not just physical life, but you can leave here today with spiritual life. How you do that is by looking to Jesus. Realizing that he is God's sent Savior for you. And in fact, he is God who has come to rescue you from your state of lostness and darkness and death and give you life. All you need to say is yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for sending Jesus into this world with a purpose, to give life. I thank you for the life, Father, that you have given me through Christ. I thank you that I can talk to you now. I can walk with you. I can share my life with you. I can plead with you on behalf of others. I'm not afraid of you in the sense that I fear that I'm going to be cast away from your presence forever. But rather through what Christ has done for me, I am at peace with you. And I look forward to an eternity with you, all because of who Jesus was, why he came into this world. Father, I pray for others here who have come to receive that life. And I pray that you might fill them with fresh awe and wonder and joy as with fresh eyes they look upon why you sent your son into this world. And Father, for some here who either refuse or maybe are starting to understand or are at the point where they intellectually believe that Jesus had to be more than just a man, Father, would you move them from information to transformation? Would you take their wills and their minds and their hearts? And would you... Bring them to faith where they look on Jesus and with everything they have, say, Jesus, give me life. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.